to say that we're now inundated with questions about really keeping your house in order, uh, putting the right foundation in place and, and being ready for, for really the unforeseen is something we're spending an incredible amount of time doing. Welcome to episode seven of the Virtual Quadcast. I'm your host, Carla Natale. Today, we join Senior Special Events Coordinator, Charity Kuit as she talks with Quinnipiac alum, Brett Amendola and Marcus DeVito, both of the National Financial Network. We'll discuss estate planning for the next decade and learn about some new rules and regulations that have recently come into play. Thank you for joining us. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you all of you who are taking time out of your busy day today. We, uh, we certainly appreciate it. You know, I've, I've had this saying for myself uh, for years that bad things seem to happen to good people at, at really the wrong or the worst possible time. And I think as a society for the last six months, we've been through, uh, through some, frankly, some bad things for good people at the wrong possible time. Our firm is uh, fairly busy and engaged in estate and financial planning consistently. And, but to say that we're now inundated with questions about really keeping your house in order, uh, putting the right foundation in place and, and being ready for, for really the unforeseen is something we're spending an incredible amount of time doing. You know, with that, we're going to spend probably the next half an hour to take you through what, what, what we're really seeing today. What are some of the highlights of estate planning, what, what we're executing? And I'm very fortunate that I have my partner, Marcus DeVito, with us. And I like to joke, Marcus has more letters after his name than he has letters in his name. So I think we're fortunate to get his perspective. With that, you know, we want to start with the first question, which is really what, compre- what constitutes a comprehensive uh, estate plan? And really, we think it starts with four key pieces. Uh, having in place really a bedrock last will and testament, uh, power of attorney statements, uh, advanced healthcare directi- directives, and potentially revocable or irrevocable trusts. Sure. So when we're, we're going to break down each one of these and explain the purpose and how they function. And the first one is the last will and testament. It's traditionally what individuals think of when they think of a will of an estate plan. It's the purpose is basically it allows to designate individuals who are going to be receiving property and distribute your assets post-mortem as desired. Uh, you can also designate who's going to be serving as an individual or your representative or administrator of your estate. Um, you get to name legal guardians for your underage children if it's applicable. And you also get to ensure that the probate court does not distribute your estate in accordance with what's called intestate law. So the difference between intestate law and probate court where a will is present is that intestate law is dictated law from the state. Uh, it's not customized in any way and it distributes the property in accordance with how the state views the property should be distributed last will and testaments can go against what intestate laws dictate, which is why they're so powerful. It is basically how you, dic- how you dictate how the probate court will be distributing assets. The power of attorney uh, is, it's not a new document. It's, it's basically a document that lists an individual who's going to make financial and legal decisions for you in the event of a physical or mental incapacity. Uh, so it's basically an individual who makes the legal decisions regarding your estate if you're unable to do so. Healthcare directives are, are kind of they're kind of a new, newer in the realm of estate planning, uh, and the purpose of a healthcare directive is to appoint a proxy to make healthcare decisions in the event of mental or physical incapacity. So 
if you think of power of attorneys as well as healthcare proxies, they're the same thing, but they focus on different areas. Power of attorneys focused on financials, healthcare directives focus on healthcare. So it's important to note that given the new HIPAA laws, which were implemented uh, in 2010 under the Affordable Care Act, individuals who are age 18 or older should all have healthcare directives. So this is something we do with all our clients. Uh, we put in place healthcare directives with their children that are attending school, because at the end of the day, if something, God forbid, happens to your child in school, uh, you're unable to access any of the, the, the documentation without one of these present to show the, the hospitals. So these are very serious. It pops up in areas where people don't necessarily expect it to occur. And it represents a way uh, to just put your state in order and to get your affairs so that in the event of an unforeseen circumstance, you're able to access the information you need. Marcus, can I ask a question while we're doing this? So I think people generally have heard the term living will. Could you compare and contrast that for me for a minute? Sure. So a living will um, is basically talking about, so it's, it's, there's different types of we can get into uh, trusts as well, too, because living trust, revocable trust, they all kind of play into the, each other. But the, the living will, will and testament, revocable, irrevocable trust, they're basically methods of protecting assets from probate. Um, so what, what is dictated through a will or a living will uh, is going to go through probate, probate, whereas a revocable and irrevocable trust removes those assets from probate, from the probate process, which makes the probate process cheaper for the actual estate and also has direct beneficiaries associated to those trusts. At the end of the day, the revocable trust and the irrevocable trust is kind of the difference between the living will and the non-living will, which is that they're open. A revocable trust is open for tax purposes. It's still considered your property. You have full control over it. The trust itself is revocable, meaning you can make changes to it during your lifetime. Irrevocable trusts are the, the, the exact opposite. It, it basically removes the assets from your estate and puts them in an area that is predetermined beneficiaries. And this is a method that's used with high net in order to lessen their estate tax upon uh, transfer of property and to basically set up contingencies and situations that dictate how money is gonna be dispersed to family members, beneficiaries that are listed. So as we think about this and we move on, what, what laws have recently been made that, that change estate planning strategies? And something I want to add, or I was thinking about, in the almost 30 years I've been a financial advisor, estate planning and tax law, I suppose one phrase we could use is hot potato. We could think of it as a Frisbee or a football. It doesn't matter who is in, what, what party's in charge or who's in office in Washington. You can be sure that almost like clockwork every four years, tax and estate laws are going to change. And as I said, when we started, you know, we've really lived through some interesting times the last 120 days. Well, if we go back 180 days, there were some significant tax and estate law changes made that I don't think people had time to digest, but, you know, we're being forced to make decisions on before we all kind of, you know, started the new normal and got to be so comfortable with the idea of Zoom. And I, I want us to spend some time on that today because really, even if you have an estate plan in place or you think you're, you know, you're on the right track, I think there's some questions that you need to be asking. Marcus? Absolutely. The, change, the laws and tax alone um, have changed drastically. So 
estate plans that were done prior to 2018 may not be relevant today. So having them reviewed is, is, is an absolute must. Uh, and you know, at the worst, worst case scenario, you get a second opinion and you basically are able to have peace of mind that they are applicable. But as Brett said, there's a lot of changes that went into place that's gonna affect how the estate gets distributed as well as tax implications associated to beneficiaries that we're gonna step into in just a moment. So back at the beginning of the year, there was a, a piece of legislation passed in Congress called the SECURE Act. Along with that was the CARES Act, but the first one we wanna talk about today is the SECURE Act. Before Marcus begins to break that down, to put it in context, most Americans today have what I'll refer to as qualified money or pre-tax money. That if you work for a large company, you're more than likely saving in a 401k. If you're an owner of a company or um, work for a smaller company, potentially you have a, a SEP or a simple plan, or possibly you still have uh, a pension. So those are pre-tax dollars. The SECURE Act comes out in January and it says a few things. One, it, it frankly, its goal was to make something secure. What it really wanted to secure was the average American's retirement. It was in recognition of the fact that people have not saved enough money for retirement. So it made some changes that not just affected how those dollars are saved, but frankly, how those dollars are distributed and what it does to someone's estate plan. And it's very significant, which is why I said, and Marcus said, even if you have a plan in place, your plans really need to be living, breathing documents and you need to have relationships that, that are trusted where you can you know, consistently review what's going on because while I don't think many of you have probably thought about it the last 120 days, how you draw on your dollars at some point is significantly different. Marcus? I, I fully agree. And it's, we're going to break it down moving forward to explain how it's different and how the tax implications come into play. So when you're looking at the, the SECURE Act, the, as Brett said, it, it was signed into law on December 19th, of 2019, with the main purpose of increasing Americans' access to tax advantage accounts in order to prevent them from outliving their assets. So what that, that's basically saying is that it's, it's attempting to make it more affordable for businesses to offer retirement plans to incentivize individuals to save for retirement. The major changes that revolved around incentivizing business owners to implement safe harbored retirement plans, which are a, a type of qualified plan where you receive a match from the employer. Um, they did this by making it less expensive and easier to administrator or administer. However, there are other changes within the law that significantly impact estate planning beyond the ease of access and lower cost of administrating these plans. So some of these changes are that one, they pushed the required minimum distribution from 70 and a half years to 72. So an RMD, which is a required minimum distribution, is a distribution from a qualified account that is mandatory upon a certain age. So traditionally speaking, you're able to draw from qualified accounts beginning at age 59 and a half without penalty. However, not everybody net needs the money at that point. And it's more beneficial for them to have the account grow tax deferred moving forward. However, the government, the IRS is, they're, they're smart. And what they realized is that no money had been paid in taxes on any of these accounts. And so they're waiting for their tax dollars. So what happened is there were ways previously that individuals never had to take money out of these accounts and then they could pass them to the next generation. 
that was undesirable in terms of the IRS. They wanted to be able to collect taxes. So what they did was they implemented what's called a required minimum distribution age, which is a point at which individuals must take money out of the account. The draw is based on mortality tables in account balance. So it's going to change every year. But the idea is that there's a minimum amount of money you have to take out that's considered taxable, which is a way for the government to begin collecting their tax dollars from accounts that are not necessarily needed at that point in time. As part of this, they got rid of what's called a stretch IRA. So stretch IRAs were something where individuals could inherit an IRA and the RMDs were based on their own lifetime. So if a, so if a guardian or a parent passed and they were, let's call it, say 85 years old and they had $500,000 in, in an IRA account in qualified money, in qualified money and they passed it to a beneficiary, which is, let's say, their daughter, who's young, much younger, those RMDs would be significantly less. And they would be able to stretch the IRA and the RMDs out over their lifetime. It was very adv advantageous for the beneficiaries because at the end of the day, they had um, less amount that needed to be withdrawn. The tax impact to them directly was less. However, with the SECURE Act, one of the changes they made was that non-spouse beneficiaries, absent some exceptions, they are required to distribute an entire IRA account balance within 10 years. So there are different ways to do it. You can do it evenly over 10 years. You could do it in lump sums. However, if you think about it this way, if you think about it in the sense that an individual retires, never really needs that retirement, that qualified account, they have a million dollars in the account, an individual inherits that million dollars, they're now either going to have to recognize $100,000 evenly over the next 10 years or lumps of distributions where the million dollars is distributed fully over a 10 year period. So it's, it's hastening the, uh, the basically distribution process and the tax associated to it. So having large amounts of qualified money, it's not disadvantageous today, but it has to be managed and handled with care because planning for the next generation, which may inherit or may not, is important because the tax implications to them are gonna be significant. So something that we regularly say is that having qualified or pre-tax pre assets may be fantastic while you're alive. It's not, it's not a great place to have assets when you pass. Correct. Um, so it certainly creates a planning opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, and one thing I, I will say about this before we move to the CARES Act is that previously it was advised to put large amounts of money in qualified accounts because this wasn't applicable. So it's not necessarily that if you have large amounts of qualified assets, you did something wrong. Laws change and perception changes. So what happens at the end of the day is that we need to adapt to these changes. So um, you know, advisors weren't wrong by telling people to put money in qualified accounts. It's just that now there's a new opportunity that needs to be taken advantage of. So the CARES Act was what was called, was, was the CARES Act is the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. It was originally published on March 27th, 2020, and it represented a $2 trillion stimulus bill in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The primary purpose of the act was to help small businesses and individuals get through the quarantine period. In order to accomplish this, some changes were made in, in regards to distributions coming from qualified accounts. So the SECURE Act came before the Qualified or the CARES Act. 
So some of these changes are going to affect how qualified accounts are going to be distributed under this CARE Act. So some of the changes that happened under the, the CARES Act were that the RMD has been waived for 2020. So individuals that were 70 and a half no longer needed to take the RMD because it got pushed up to 72. But now if you're 72, you don't necessarily need to take it in 2020 either. Qualifying individuals are able now to distribute up to $100,000 or 100% of their vested qualified assets. This was an increase from 50,000 or 50%. They doubled. The reason that they did this was in order to basically allow individuals to have access to money because cash flow was short during the, the, the pandemic. Okay. The, the distributions can either be reported as income over three years or it can be repaid to the qualified account in reverse the tax implications of the latter. So regardless of whether or not you pull the money or if you pull the money out, you have to report it. However, moving forward, you can choose then to pay it back and amend those returns down the road. So then uh, that the brings us to our, our next point, uh, and then we're going to, after this, we'll open it up for questions. What are some of the strategies that, that we're seeing or that we're doing that can be implemented given the new laws that are in place? You know, you know something that we're, we're frankly, as I said when I started, we're having numerous conversations and engagements on what's going on in these laws and and estate plans that have been done and, and how do we make things most applicable to where we stand. So when we're thinking about how are we getting around the stretch IRA and how are we dealing with the, the estate planning issues of that, one of the strategies that we're using that, that Marcus is very efficient in is, is this idea of non-spoth beneficiaries distributing their assets now. Marcus, could you, could you go into that a little bit? Sure, so, so one, of the, one of the workarounds for the stretch IRA is utilizing different tools. So when you're thinking of your tools, you have a tax taxable account, a pre-tax account, and a, and a tax-free account. And the idea is you wanna populate all these accounts because they represent opportunity during your retirement. If an individual retires and has every dollar they, they own in a qualified account, which is invested, what happens is if we experience something like the pandemic, there's only one area to get assets, which is the qualified account, which is invested, which means that you're going to be getting assets from a depreciated account. It's not advantageous to take money from an account that's down. So one of the things that we've been doing with clients is what's called a stretch IRA workaround. You utilize permanent cash, uh, permanent uh, insurance, which is cash value insurance, it's whole life insurance, which is very much analogous to a Roth IRA. So for those that are not aware what a Roth IRA is, Roth IRAs, unlike traditional IRAs, are after-tax dollars. So the contributions you make to the Roth IRAs go in after tax, they grow tax-free, and the money withdrawn from those accounts are tax-free as well. You don't have to pay gains on the taxes. I'm sorry, taxes on the gains. However, there are income limitations to Roth IRAs because they're very advantageous. However, there are no income limitations uh, in order to contribute to, to cash value life insurance. So cash value life insurance, if you structure it the right way, can be very much analogous to a Roth IRA uh, in terms of taxation. So what we've been doing a lot with clients is clients that don't necessarily need their qualified account money and have RMDs, it's advantageous for them to utilize these RMDs to fund a permanent life insurance policy because those dollars are going to be leveraged to serve more, multiple purposes. 
It's permanent insurance. It's a savings tool. You can tack on long-term care to them. These, these type of contracts have become very, uh, very robust. So, and desirable. And desirable. So, the, the, so the dollars you're spending on these type of contracts are going to serve multiple purposes. You can transfer assets with these RMDs from a uh, pre-tax account to a tax-deferred slash tax-free account, making them more advantageous for you not only during your lifetime, but also for beneficiaries who may or may not inherit them. And what it does is it ensures that beneficiaries are going to receive the full value of the estate rather than losing a substantial amount to taxes by earmarking portions or all of the insurance to pay for future estate taxes. So right now, the estate taxes have been heightened. We have an 11 point, a little bit over $11.2 million per individual federal estate tax exemption. Many of the states are indexed to match that very shortly, which means that they're going, you know, they're going to have the same ex exemption amount. So couples, married individuals, have a total of just over $22.4 million that they're able to pass to the next generation without incurring any estate taxes. However, that threshold may or may not change. It depends how the individual is in office, they can repeal it. In 2026, that's either going to be enacted into law or it's going to be sunset. There's a sunset provision, which means it goes away if it's not enacted. So this period of time represents kind of a window of opportunity. To, to get some gifting strategies in place, to get kind of your estate in place and to remove assets from the estate in order to take advantage of the heightened exemption. There is no clawback, which means that the IRS is not going to come back and say you owe taxes on you know, the amount that you gave if the provision sunsets. So it, it really represents a unique opportunity. However, one of the areas that this insurance can also be situated is that if you're over the threshold, and you do have to pay taxes, whether or not you're over the 22.4, the 11.2, or they sunset the provision down the road and the exemption becomes much lower if you're over that portion. The death benefit associated to this life insurance contract can be earmarked and utilized to pay the taxes associated to the estate, which ensures that the beneficiaries receive the full value of your estate and you're not losing anything um, to taxes. So it's all about leveraging dollars. It's all about playing, uh, taking advantage of the tax situations that are available. And this represents one of the strategies that we've been implementing with clients who have large amounts of, per of qualified assets that are not necessarily utilized and are not advantageous for the next generation. You know, and I think that flows very nightly into um, our idea that we've been doing quite a bit for an amplified gifting strategy. The next slide. One thing that I think makes us unique as Americans is that many of us are charitably inclined. There are things we care about. As an example, something you could care about is Quinnipiac or, you know, the hospital that treated your grandmother or, you know, there's no shortage of things that Americans care about. The, the two acts that we've talked about have, have caused us to relook at people's assets and estate planning. And with that, we have been utilizing what Marcus was just talking about, some of the tools to look to make gifts today. Marcus, would you like to discuss that? Sure. So one of the strategies we've been using for clients that necessarily have a charitable uh, wish is that they, a lot of the time when you, when you give assets to charity, you don't get the deduction today. So unless you give the money today. So a lot of the time individuals will leave assets to a charity or an institution, a, non, a, a, a nonprofit institution like a university. However, what receives the exemption or the tax deduction is the estate. That's not always advantageous to the individual who's giving the asset. Sometimes they want the deduction today. 
So one of the strategies we've been putting in place is what's called an amplified gifting strategy. So again, dollars that are spent on an insurance contract are leveraged, meaning $10 you put into an insurance contract is not going to pay $10 of benefit. It's going to pay 2x that. So the idea is that you put money into a contract today, you allow the charity beneficiary to own the policy today, and that gives you a current deduction for the premiums that are paid. So it's a great way to, to, to get a current deduction for, for a donation that occurs down the road. And not only a donation that occurs down the road, but an amplified donation that occurs down the road because the dollars you're putting in today are for a future value that's larger. I hope we've done over the last half an hour covered, although we did it at a fairly high level, I, I think we gave you some good information thinking about what, what are the basics of a good estate plan, what are we seeing out there today, and what are some strategies we're using, utilizing to take advantage of some of the opportunities or mitigate some of the changes. Charity, I guess it, it, at this point we'll open it up to questions. Yes, uh, we are welcome to take any questions right now that guests may have. Um, I guess I can get us started too. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how somebody who might only have one account, maybe they have their 401 through work, um, what's a way for them to get started in planning and distributing their money across these different types of funds? That's a great question. Um, and that kind of falls within my realm, which is, so one of the things that uh, you had said that I do and I focus on is I'm the director of advanced planning here at National Financial Network. My job is primarily to do fee-based planning. When talking to an individual that has all their money in one spot right now, the best thing you can do is to sit down with an advisor and go over your goals, go over what you have and determine what the correct path moving forward would be. It's different for each and every person. So everybody has different goals. Everybody has different, you know, an idea of what wealth is. Everybody has a different idea of what financial independence means. So once we have clarity in regards to what that means for each individual, being able to structure the proper tools around their financial picture that help ensure they reach those goals is, is the best way to move forward. So I think the first step is to call an advisor and to sit down with them and to go over what it is you're trying to achieve. And if, you don't have an idea of what you want to achieve. Advisors like Brett and myself work in tune with helping guide individuals. So if you're not quite sure yet, you know, we work with individuals like you every day. We kind of know the questions to ask to prod and pry the answers that may be difficult to think on your own. I think too, when, when you think about the estate planning portion of someone's financial life or financial plan, it really doesn't matter if in your, your 30s, your 40s, or your 80s, that you're going to have, you're going to want to be positioned in such a way that you're, you're organized and thoughtful and, and seeking out a, a good financial advisor or a good estate planning attorney to help you at least put the basics in place. And, and really those people should work in concert and as a team, you'll, you'll be better off. So it doesn't matter if you have no kids, one account or four kids in many accounts, um, the, the foundation is the same, if that makes sense. Great. We have a couple more questions. Uh, Kristen is asking, she says, you mentioned healthcare directives. What do you recommend to do in a state that does not have the MOLST? The, I'm sorry, the what? Uh, MOLST? Uh, well, the HIPAA law changes were federal changes. So healthcare directives, it's, it's a federal requirement whether or not the hospital is requiring it, generally speaking, they do. Um, here on the East Coast, 
I have not seen a state that does not require uh, healthcare directives. Uh, you know, this came about around 2006 was when they started talking about it. 2008 was when it went into play. It's not an expensive procedure to do. And I would still have one regardless because whether or not your child or you as an individual is in a specific state, accidents happen all over and at the, at the worst point in time. So you might not be in a state that maybe requires one now. However, down the road, where you are when you need one is, is unknown. So it's, it's part of a comprehensive estate plan and it's, it's part of a package. A lot of estate planning attorneys do things on fixed fees now. Um, and it's, it's something that should be requested. And from Michael, we have, what if I have a will and revocable trust in New Jersey, but planning to permanently move to Florida, would you wait to move before revising the estate plan? I think it would depend on the time frame. Um, you can have attorneys draft a new will in a, in, in a, in a new state. Um, however, if it's if you're talking about a year or a year and a half, two years before you move, I'd I'd change the the plan today. If you're talking about you know a matter of weeks, I think it would be reasonable to wait. However, I get ca I get cautious saying anything anybody should wait just because it's you, you don't know what's going to happen. Bad things happen to good people at the wrong time. Thank you. Um, also from Ben, we have. How do you transfer pre-tax account to tax deferred or free account? For example, from a current 403B to a Roth IRA and the optimum, optimal amount to do every year. Hmm. That's a very specific question. Very. Um, and what I believe he's referring to is what's called as a backdoor Roth. Uh, or a Roth conversion. Or a Roth conversion, yeah. yeah this, and they're, what I would say about Roth conversions, the way that they work is that basically it's a, it's a method of getting an individual who is over the threshold to contribute to a Roth account, inability to contribute to a Roth account by making a contribution to a traditional IRA and then converting it to a Roth account before it has any sort of investment gain. So then you pay the taxes up front. And although it's legal right now, I don't know how much longer it'll be allowed. It's kind of a, it's, 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 it's entirely legal. It's, it's just, it's, it's a roundabout way to get to a Roth account. The much simpler and the much uh, smoother operation would be to transfer it to another structure and utilizing the RMDs or less or more of qualified money to pay premiums on those type of structures, which basically execute and operate the same way as a Roth. Because you might be doing it to a Roth account today, and we don't know how long that will be permitted. Whereas we know that insurance is not going to be going anywhere, and that strategy will stay in place. So if I could add one thing, part of this is managing the uh, tax brackets. So to know how much to do and when to do it, you know, depends on what your mm -hmm. earnings are this year, what you think your earnings will be next year. And it's a very complicated planning strategy because there's multiple things that we're trying to manage when we do it. If you're taking money out of a qualified plan to then put it back in, that's not a tax-free event. So we do it. Frankly, we did one for a client yesterday, mm -hmm. but there's a significant number of moving parts and I'd feel better that we'd be happy to answer that question for you, but it would be hard to answer it in this setting. Very, very true. And the, one, the, the only other thing I'll add is that one thing that's unique is that with the Roth account, what, what, what he was asking in regards to 
uh, converting from a 403B to a Roth account, there are contribute not only thresholds of income, but there are contribution limits, as in you can only put so much into an account like that per year. Whereas with other structures, you might be able to forego those contribution limits. So like, like Brett said, it's a very specific question. Um, you know, we would need additional information in order to advise on that. However, generally speaking, um, that's, how, that's how we would approach it. Okay, great. And let's see, someone else. We've got Rebecca here. She'd like to know if the CARES Act changed anything major with charitable giving strategy for estate planning. It did. It changed. I don't have the specifics in front of me at this moment, but it did change in regards to how much you can contribute in terms of AGI, adjusted gross income. It heightened the levels. I believe previously it was 50% and then you could get a deduction and now they, they increased it to 100. As in individuals that are making enough money or have enough money uh, to, to live comfortably, they are able to fully donate their assets to a charity and take a full deduction. Um, there are other changes as well. I, I don't have them in front of me at this time. Thank you. And we have another question from Siraj. How safe is insurance? That's a great question. And, I, and, the, and the answer to that is when you're working with the correct company, insurance is, is the, the safest alternative to cash. Okay. Um, and one more question. What are some examples of other structures utilizing RMD? I think what you're asking, are there other places to put RMDs other than where we, you know, we were talking about one specific planning idea here, you know, to, that really ends up maximizing giving or, uh, or passing a state, uh, passing assets in your estate. But you can utilize, once you take dollars out of an R, out of a qualified plan, you're taking your RMD. I mean, those dollars can go into almost any universe you want. They're now your after-tax dollars. If you want to buy a vacation home, you can buy a vacation home. If you want to invest in Apple or a mutual fund or, you know, your savings account, you know, the world is your oyster. If you're asking for a specific recommendation, you know, we'd really have to know you to do that. But once the dollars are out of the qualified plan, you know, they're free and clear. You can do anything you like with them. One of the things we do with clients is clients that we've had for a long time, many of them have the insurance structures already in place, most of which have been already been paid off as in they're, they're not really paying premiums anymore moving forward. And so what we do with those individuals is when they have an RMD that they don't need, we plug it into a brokerage account uh, and basically put it into after-tax dollars and into their overall investment strategy. Uh, but like Brett said, it can, it, it can go a hundred different places. Frankly, hundreds of places. Yeah, hundreds of places. Great, thank you. Good. Well, the steady stream of questions that keep coming in. So this is great. Patrice would like to know, do you have any uh, ideas or examples of when it's better to use a revocable trust versus an irrevocable trust? Yes. Um, so, well, absolutely. Asset size for one, because there's different reasons why you would use an irrevocable trust. The main reason for an irrevocable trust is to remove assets from a trust or from the estate um, and also to remove it from the probate process. The, the primary difference between revocable and irrevocable trusts is that one is amendable, you can amend it, the other is not. So a revocable trust is equivalent to a trust that you can alter over time. It, nothing gets removed from your, asset, from your assets, you remain in control of everything there, and it just represents kind of a, a letter of intent. 
where a, an irrevocable trust represents an executed transaction, as in the trust now is irrevocable. You cannot make any changes to it. And the determinate, like the decisions you made in regards to that trust are final. So one area, as Brett said before, is asset size and what the purpose of the trust is doing. But the main thing is you really want to make sure that if you're using an irrevocable trust, it has a specific purpose and the specific purpose is lasting. It is not something that's temporary because once it's in place, you're not able to change it. Thank you. We have time for one more question from Paul. He would like to know if there is a general best approach for an older surviving parent in regards to their home. Is there a tax advantage to doing a quick claim to a child or just to keep it in their name and let it go to probate? That's a great question. Um, and again, it's very specific. I do a lot of quick claim deeds with clients. We have multiple clients that have uh, large amounts of generational wealth. And so what happens is that they have properties that are generational properties, as in they pass on. And as you would imagine, there are disagreements among siblings around those properties. So when dealing with the, the question that you're asking, whether it's better to quit claim or let it go through the probate process, I can't answer the question directly. However, what I can say is that if you quit claim a deed, you miss the step up in basis. So one thing that happens is upon passing, inherited property receives a basis that is equivalent to fair market value. So when I'm saying basis, what I'm, re what I'm referring to is your base in the, pro in, the, in the asset. So when you're looking at gains and losses, gains are what you have above basis. So if you own a property and you bought it for $125,000 or the parent bought it for $125,000, but now it's worth 750, if they quit claim the deed, the individual who receives that quit claim is going to receive a basis in that property of what the parent paid, 125. If they then sell it later on, everything above that 125, absent the exclusion, would be considered gains and taxable, capital gains, if you hold it for more than a year. If you wait and have it go through probate, probate can be expensive and time consuming, um, but what you would obtain is what's called a step up a basis, meaning that your basis in the property would be equivalent to what the fair market value is. So for example, the same scenario, 125, 750, if you then went and sold that property later on, you would only receive taxable income that is greater than 750 rather than the 125. So there's a lot of variables involved and I'm not trying to evade the question, but it, it, it requires a more, more questioning about the specific circumstances before I can answer it. I was going to say, I, I think that, an, that part of that, that answer goes to, you know, what do you have, what do you hope happens to that house? As Marcus was saying, is it something that's staying in the family? Or is it going to be liquidated and, and split among siblings or will the dollars go to a charity or frankly to cover final expenses? I think there's a lot of questions and it goes back to the comment we've made a few times. It's really important to have trusted advisors that know you know what you want to accomplish and, and frankly are on top of the consistently changing tax law landscape because one of the things I was thinking as Marcus talked is that's all based on today. Mm -hmm. the, the basis issues are today, but in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, they were projecting as to what the basis laws could be a year from now. You really need to have someone who's on top of this stuff. Hopefully we did a good job of covering the basics today. Yes, definitely. This has been amazing. A lot of really great information. And I think this is a good opportunity too to say that, you know, if 
folks do have more questions about specific scenarios or just want to learn more, it's a great opportunity to get in touch. You can visit their website at natfin.net or um, both Brett and Marcus have their emails up here, bmdola at natfin.net and marcus.devito at natfin.net to learn more. We'll also have this event posted up on the virtual pod in the next couple of weeks. So you can check that out if you need some refreshers. And thank you so much to both of you, both to Brett and Marcus. We really appreciate your time and all of this education. There's a lot going on in the world of estate planning and all the changes and we need a, a great experts to keep track of it. So thank you so much. Thank Absolutely. you, Charity. Thank you, Quinnipiac. Thank you. Thank you to Brett Amendola and Marcus DeVito for joining us for today's episode. The Virtual Quadcast is produced by Quinnipiac graduate student Michael Bachman and executive produced by David DeRoche, Quinnipiac's Director of Community Programming. And it's hosted by me, Carla Natale, Associate Vice President for University Events and Community Partnerships. You can learn more about all our podcasts by visiting qu.edu slash podcasts. You can subscribe and listen to any of our podcasts by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other apps. We'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to send us your episode ideas and feedback at qupodcasts at qu.edu. You can also learn more about our virtual events by visiting qu.edu slash virtual quad. Thank you for joining us on the quad at the virtual quadcast. Mm-hmm.